We're in Genesis chapter 18 for a few minutes this evening. If you have a copy of God's Word, Genesis chapter 18, we're in um, a study of faith by looking at the model of faith, particularly from the Old Testament, which is the life of Abraham. As we study our way through the book of Genesis on Wednesday nights, it's a um, uh, kind of a sad day. Of course, we, we do post uh, these Wednesday night studies on um, our online website, and so you can listen to Wednesday nights. You kind of have to navigate your way to it because we don't put it on the main page, but you can find it. And uh, we're doing these series of studies from Genesis because my friend Jim Wilson asked me to do it. See, all you got to do is ask. But I'm going to say that, and some of y'all will come up here and want me to preach a series through Obadiah or something and make me really have to work hard. Uh, but Jim asked me to do it, and so I'm a little, I, I hate that he's not able, he was here for about half of our study through uh, creation in the first few chapters of Genesis and not been able to have been here since, but we're in Genesis because uh, he wanted to study Genesis. It's his favorite book of the Bible. I believe, and how rich it is. We always enjoy being in Genesis, and it's an important book because you really cannot understand the rest of the Bible unless you have a proper understanding of the book of Genesis. If you're deficient in your understanding of Genesis, you'll probably be deficient in your larger understanding of Scripture. So we're spending a few weeks and even months in uh, the first book of the Bible, and we're in the second section of Genesis, which deals with Abraham and the subject of faith. And tonight, uh, as we've just finished uh, with a brief time of prayer, I want us to focus on the prayer of faith, because prayer does play a major role in a life of faith. You cannot be a person of great faith and not be a person of great prayer, and yet we would all probably argue uh, or confess that prayer is likely uh, a deficiency. I mean, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of us would raise it if I were to ask how many of you feel like that you could do a much, much better job in your prayer life than you tend to do right now. I think most of us would probably raise our hands. And that's because prayer is hard work. There's nothing easy about prayer. I mean, effective prayer. Prayer is really not difficult at all. You can teach a parrot how to pray. Uh, and so, and a lot of us have what I call parroted prayer lives. Because whenever we open our mouths to pray, we say the same thing over and over and over and over again. I remember sitting at the table, Judy's granddaddy was a godly man, loved the Lord. But when we would sit at the table, he would pray, and he prayed the same prayer every time he prayed at the table. I got to where I could quote it better than he quoted it. And so many of us are like that. We have to some degree weakness in our prayer life, and yet to grow in faith necessarily, I think, means growing in prayer. And that's very important because it has been said, and I believe it's true, that if it hadn't already, there will come a time in your life where for God to answer your prayer will be the most important thing in your life. And that's why it's so important to make sure that you're a person of prayer now. There, 
what I call 911 prayers are legit. I believe in 911 prayers. But if the only thing you do, the only time you ever pray is when you're in a 911 situation, then friend, you have an anemic prayer life. You can call to God anytime, and it's especially important to call to God in emergencies. But the effectiveness, I think, of those emergency 911 prayers are always predicated upon the ongoing prayer life of the disciple. There are times in life where we do have our backs to the wall, kind of, you know, those George Bailey moments from It's a Wonderful Life, the movie that you watch every Christmas, if you're like me, and he's, you know, things have gone about as far south as they can go, and he's in the bar, and he's crying a tear in his beer, and the reason is because he's stuck, and he admits he starts to pray at the bar, and he says, Lord, you know I'm not a praying man, but... I'm just saying, if you're listening, I really need you to come through at this stage in life. And so he parts, he asks God to part the waters and bring him through on dry ground. And it's that kind of anguished prayer that you see coming from the heart of Abraham here in Genesis chapter 18. And interestingly enough, it's an anguished prayer for the most wicked city in the history of the world. It's a prayer that Abraham praise for the city of Sodom. Verse 22 of Genesis 18. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place. For their sake. Now let's just stop there for a few minutes and set the stage here because in the previous section, you remember Abraham had been having a siesta out in the shade of his tent in the middle of the day when he sees at a distance three strangers walking toward him and he realizes that he's in the presence of royalty and so he has people to snap to it and he prepares what amounts to a feast for these three visitors which turn out to be messengers from heaven, one of them, I believe, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, because there is one of them that Abraham continues to call Lord throughout the entire encounter. The other two are angelic beings, celestial beings, angels probably, and they are with this appearance of the Lord. And so there's a reason that the Bible says, you know, don't, don't be slow to show hospitality to others because you never know when you might be entertaining angels unawares. That's in the book of Hebrews. And you find Abraham experiencing that very thing. He goes into high hospitality mode. And lo and behold, it's not only entertaining two angels unawares, but he's entertaining the physical presence of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. And unbeknownst to him at the time, they are all actually on a mission of judgment. 
They're coming not so much to visit Abraham, though they are coming to visit Abraham, but ultimately they're passing through Abraham on their way to Sodom. And the Bible says in verse 16 that when they had finished this delicious meal, then the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom. So Sodom was obviously on their minds. It was the purpose of this heavenly business trip. And there's a reason for that that you find down in verses 20 and 21, just before what we read a moment ago. The Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, let me add an important word of clarification there, because sometimes that statement in verses 20 and 21 is misunderstood. May I say tonight, it's not that the Lord didn't already know exactly what was happening in Sodom. Does everybody understand that? The Lord Jesus Christ does not have to physically come to earth to check anything out. And so he was very clear as omniscient God, the things that were going on, the wickedness of the city. God came down primarily not to see what was happening in Sodom. He came down primarily as a witness to Abraham. Remember, God had called this one man to follow him with all of his heart as a man of faith. From this one man, he was going to create a brand new race of people called the nation of Israel. And there were certain things about God that Abraham had to continually learn. He didn't learn everything about God in one fell swoop. He was just like us. He was on a lifetime journey of discipleship. And there were a few things about the holiness of God and the justice of God and the judgment of God that Abraham, the father of Israel, and this important man of faith had to know about God. And so God wants to teach Abraham something, and that's part of the reason why he comes physically in the form of Jesus Christ. The judgment of Sodom or the destruction of Sodom was meant to convey to Abraham the same thing that the judgment of the flood was meant to convey to Noah, namely that God is holy and he does not tolerate sin and God must and will always judge sin. That was a lesson that Abraham had to know. And that's part of the reason why Jesus shows up. It's a teachable moment for Abraham. But to our point tonight, what's significant is the way Abraham responds to that look that the Lord gives towards Sodom. Now, God had never specifically told Abraham that he was going to destroy Sodom. He never says in this passage, you know what, I'm going down there and I'm going to rain fire and brimstone on it. But I think there was no question in Abraham's mind because Abraham knew what was happening there. He knew everything that was happening there. And I think that when he saw the Lord gazing in that direction, he could look and he could put two and two together I think that Abraham knew what was in that look. And the conversation that follows between Abraham and the Lord basically confirms that because he's pleading with the Lord to relent. So he knows what's coming. And it teaches us a lot about prayer. And it teaches us a lot about praying by faith. Because see, what is happening here is you have Abraham having a conversation with Christ, which is all in the world prayer is. What is prayer? Prayer is a conversation. It's not just one way. It's 
two ways because prayer involves talking and prayer involves stillness and listening as well. And so it's a two-way conversation with God. And that's why no one here can say, I just don't have what it takes to pray. Because the answer to that question is, can I pray? Can you talk? Because that's all that's what's required for a person to pray. Well, faith on the one hand, you got to trust Jesus and then the ability to speak. In fact, can I just say you don't even have to have the ability to speak because a mute person can pray. You just have to have the ability to direct inward or outward communication to the presence of God. And that's prayer. So this is what Abraham is doing. He's carrying on a conversation with the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And you see three important characteristics about the prayer of faith that I think are still important to all of us today. The first is that the prayer of faith is righteous prayer. It's righteous prayer. It's not frivolous. It's not haphazard. It's righteous, and by that I simply mean that it needs to come from a right heart. Verse 22, so the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. Literally, Abraham drew near to the Lord. That's the import. Have you ever noticed how when you're talking to someone, having a conversation with someone, if the conversation gets really serious, have you ever noticed how there's this tendency to get closer to the person that you're talking to? In the times when I got around to disciplining my kids, I didn't do it from across the room. I would take several steps to their direction. Now, they might try to increase the distance by going in the other direction, but there's this tendency to draw near, particularly when the conversation is serious, when there's sobriety in what's being talked about. And that's what we see Abraham. He notices the Lord gazing toward Sodom. And it's a, it's a lingering gaze. And he knows what's in that gaze. And the Bible says Abraham draws near to the Lord. Now remember, the Lord's right there with him physically. And so he literally decreases or increases the proximity, decreases the distance between himself and Christ and what you see here is Abraham pleading with the Lord on the basis of his relationship with the Lord. Those angelic beings had walked away, but Abraham is standing before the Lord, drawing nearer to the Lord. And what's he doing? He's pleading with the Lord for the very souls of that city. And that's righteous prayer. This is not a frivolous prayer. He is concerned about what's going to happen to the people that live in that city. And that's important for us today because if we pray, the most effective our prayers will ever be is directly related to the condition of our heart before the Lord. The Bible says in the book of James, the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much, which is an important qualification. So it's a heart thing. You've got to approach God with the right heart. And is that not what the Bible says? There's a great passage in Psalm 24 where the psalmist asks and answers the question, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? In other words, who has standing before the Lord? To ascend the hill of the Lord means to get where God is. To the Jew, God was exalted. So to get to him, you had to kind of go up. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may draw near to God? And David answers the question, he who has what? clean hands and a 
pure heart. You see the connection there? Decreasing the proximity is directly related to my condition or to the condition of my heart and the cleanness of my hands in terms of my relationship with the Lord. Jesus said in John 15, 7, the great abiding passage, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, again, this is a first-class conditional sentence in English, if, then, the conditions of the if must be qualified for the then to take place, if you abide in me. In other words, if you draw near to me and remain in me, if you live within me, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Do you see the connection between my heart, my relationship with the Lord, my righteous life, and the effectiveness of my prayer? Life-changing prayer always involves a right heart, a heart that's close to God. It's easy to be superficial in prayer. Many people are. Uh, but Abraham is not superficial here. I mean, he's just getting down with it. And he's serious about his relationship. In fact, can I make a statement? I'm not sure that you ever see Abraham more Christ-like than you see him right here in this prayer. Because he's an intercessor. Y'all know what an intercessor is? An intercessor is someone who stands in between two hostile parties, okay? And so this is what we mean by intercessory prayer. We kind of engaged in some intercessory prayer for some friends of ours off of our prayer list as we started tonight. The prayer I prayed to begin tonight was fundamentally an intercessory prayer where I, on all of our behalf, led us to stand between an injured party maybe a hostile party, and a holy God. So we're pleading their case in the presence of the Lord. And that's what Abraham is doing here. In fact, best I can tell, this is the first intercessory prayer you find in the Bible. And the thing about we love about Genesis is it, it's a book of firsts. I mean, the first everything happens in Genesis. First man, the first woman, the first marriage, the first baby, the first sin, the first murder. You know, everything happens with first judgment, a lot of first, first intercessory prayer. With Abraham standing literally between the living and the dead, pleading for those who needed to be saved, to be spared from judgment. So what he's doing is he's acting as a priest, which, of course, in the New Testament, we're told that all of us as the people of God are priests. You're a priest, I'm a priest. This is why we can have an ongoing relationship with God. We don't need another human being to have a relationship with God. We don't have to go through a human priest to get to God. We're a priest, so we can talk directly with God. But we also can build a bridge on behalf of others to God. That's intercessory prayer, standing in the gap, interceding on behalf of others. And Abraham is doing it for a neighboring community. And what a great model that is, because we're supposed to be like that. We're supposed to stand between God and the very lost people that we live in with and move among in our own community, the lost of our city, the lost of our community, lost of our neighborhoods. We're to implore God to move in their life so that they can be saved. So here's a question that I ask myself as I'm preparing today. Do I really have a burden for lost people? I mean, really? I mean, I can remember as a little boy growing up, and my little church that I grew up in that on a good day had 60, 75 people in it. 
virtually every time we're gathered together, somebody was praying for the lost. And you rarely hear that much anymore. You know, usually we've become very self-absorbed oftentimes in our praying. And it's like the great prayer warrior E.M. Bounds, who's been dead for many years, but he used to say if the church, he, he's the one that coined the phrase set to praying. If the church would set to praying and refuse to let go until we got a word from the Lord, it changed the whole way we looked at our city and our community. So God help us to recapture that fervency for lost souls and to stand in the gap that God would convict and bring a great spiritual awakening that we might see thousands of lost souls come to faith in Jesus Christ. Because unless they're saved, the only thing they have to look forward to is death and a judgment to come. Isn't that right? So God give us a passion for the lost. So Abraham had it, but it was because he had a heart that was where God was. I think it was Adrian Rogers used to say, if you want what God's got, you got to get where God is. Amen. And Abraham was where God was. And that's what set him to praying this kind of prayer, even for people that he didn't know and for people that he didn't condone their behavior. Because this is a pretty bad city. Y'all know Sodom was a bad place, right? Really bad. Las Vegas, Girl Scout camp compared to the city of Sodom. And so Abraham righteously prayed for them because he was, Abraham is the anti-Jonah. Remember the story of Jonah as it related to Nineveh? They were just as lost in Nineveh as the people in Sodom. And yet what was Jonah's response when God said, go preach the word to them? He ran the other way. In fact, you know why he ran the you know why he ran the other way? Because he wanted God to judge him. He hated the Ninevites. He was racist against them, biased against them. He wanted God to judge them. And yet you see the anti-Jonah in Abraham. Don't judge them. Please. And so it's a great righteous prayer. That's the first element of the prayer of faith. Secondly, the prayer of faith is bold prayer. Bold. And I do think that you ought to pray boldly uh, to God. Hebrews 4.16 is a great verse. Uh, Let us then with what? Say it out loud. With confidence drawn near, which is what, remember, that's what Abraham's done. He drew near before the Lord, and the Bible says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive what? Mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is a great verse to apply to what's going on in Abraham's life right here because that's what he's doing. He's drawing near to God and he's doing it with confidence because he wants to appeal to the grace of God and to the mercy of God to spare these that God would otherwise judge. Very bold prayer. Begins in verse 23. Then Abraham drew near and said... Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth 
do what is just. Now, again, this is not a perfect prayer because Abraham apparently didn't know what we know with the completed canon of Scripture and that there's, there's never a nanosecond where the Lord of heaven and earth is not ever not completely just. He's always completely just. But Abraham didn't have the whole picture here. You know, he didn't understand fully probably the holiness of God. He didn't understand fully the justice of God. God, would, God, would have, God was completely just in incinerating the whole city because of their sin. What Abraham yet to, uh, had yet to understand was God would also have been just if he'd have blown him out of existence. Because he certainly didn't do anything to be called unto God for salvation. He didn't do anything. In fact, he was a moon-worshiping pagan in Ur of Chaldees. So Abraham was still, even at 99 years old, he still has things he needs to learn about God. But one of the things that you appreciate here is Abraham drawing near to God and praying very courageously, boldly. Now, let me say there's a difference between praying boldly and praying proudly. Because sometimes we equate, equate boldness with a cocksureness or with pride. And that's not what we see Abraham doing here. Uh, we know that the Bible says God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. But let me just say, I, I had, are y'all still with me? Say amen. I had rather risk a believer praying proudly before God as opposed to not praying at all. Because I think God can always redirect us in our prayer life. So I, I'd much rather run the risk of somebody praying, uh, for lack of a better word, improperly or proudly or maybe theologically incorrectly. And a lot of people don't pray because they're afraid they won't get the words right. To which I say, don't worry about that. You just pray because if you're praying with the right heart, the kind of heart that Abraham has here, the Spirit of God will work in you to get you where God is. So I'd much rather have a person pray imperfectly than to not pray at all. So pray. Prayer is really a can't-lose proposition. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says you have the Spirit of God living within you, and the Spirit of God acts as a great God-given prayer partner to help you uh, in your prayer life, and that He takes your prayers and actually presents them before God in a more perfect kind of way if you had all the facts and if you were not broken by sin. And so it's a no-lose situation to pray. But one thing you don't see, this is not a proud prayer. It's not a selfish prayer. In fact, who's Abraham thinking of the whole time he's praying? Who's he thinking of? Those other people. So, I mean, really, when I say Abraham is more Christ-like than you ever see him here, he's got the same ad. Listen, Jesus died on the cross for sinful people. He didn't die for friends. He died for enemies. And Abraham's not pleading a case for friends. He's pleading a case for people that are as anti-God as they can be. And so this is not a proud, selfish prayer. This is an others-centered prayer prayer. You see that in verse 27. He's actually very humble 
Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. You think he doesn't know who he's talking to? You think he doesn't understand who he is and who the Lord is? I have, you could almost see him bent over as he's saying this. I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. So the beautiful thing about that is Abraham knew who he was and he knew who the Lord was and he shaped his prayer accordingly. And all of that was because he walked with God. And he's appealing to God on the basis of his justice. Far be it from you to do such a thing. Will the judge of all the earth not do what is just? That's a really bold statement. My kids, uh, and he's appealing to God on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. My kids, um, when they were little and growing up, and probably still do, though it's kind of different now with grown kids, uh, my kids used to have minds like steel traps. They never forgot anything I said, particularly when there was a promise attached to it. If I said that I was going to do something, which busy fathers are prone to do, uh, they are on you about something and you're quick to you know, wish them, not wish them away, but whisk them away and so you'll say, okay, well, we'll do that. Well, but maybe we'll do that next Friday. And then you completely forget about it. And then next Thursday rolls around and they're rat-a-tat-tat what you said you was going to do next Friday. So my kids were very quick. Dad, you promised. Or Dad, you said. They never forgot anything except what I told them to do. They would forget that a lot. But if I said it, they never forgot it. And uh, so... This is Abraham basically making an, an appeal to the fairness of God, very boldly. It's like Jacob. You remember the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel at Peniel when he got his hip dislo dislocated, wrestling with the angel of God, which was probably wrestling with the person of Christ. That may have been another pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here you have Jacob wrestling. And what does he say? Anybody remember what Jacob said? I mean, they were grappling together. You know, I, I, there were three boys in my family. I had two brothers, and so we, we had some kind of altercation going on virtually all the time. And my mother would call it fighting, and my dad would say, well, that's really not the definition of fighting because they're locked in holding one another, just rolling around. There's a difference between locked up rolling around and fighting. And yet we would, we would be, I think we were all scared to let go for fear of what would happen. And so the deal was you just kind of bumped hard and embraced and then you just squeezed and rolled around and maybe tried to get a couple of licks on the top of the head. But here you have Jacob embraced with this angel. And you remember what Jacob said? Anybody remember for a box of Snickers tonight? I will not let you go until you Bless me. There you go. I had to give you the first part. No candy for the girls' table tonight. I'm sorry. No. I do have a pack of licorice in the office, though, that you can have later. No, that actually is very good. I will not let you go until you bless me. That's bold. I mean, he's saying that to the Lord. Okay? We see the same thing happening. Moses does the same thing. I think we may put in your notes tonight, there's a passage in Exodus 33, because God's not happy with Israel. They're in the Exodus, 
and they're disobeying God in the aftermath of the idolatry of the Exodus. Look at verse 13, Exodus 33. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. It's almost like Moses is reminding God of things that he needs to consider in order to be just and fair. Consider, too, this nation is your people. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, then do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we're distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And so it's kind of interesting that this bold prayer, this, this is an intercessory prayer again, and God is ready to enact judgment on his people, but he doesn't because of the righteousness and the boldness of one man who stands in the gap and pleads with God on the basis of his love and tenderness and mercy. So Moses got results, and he got results because he approached God with the right heart, and he appealed to God on the basis of his own righteous character. Some people would read that, and they say, well, that's manipulative, and that's being cocky. I don't think so, not at all. That's just bold praying from somebody who is walking with God, who's close to God, and who knows the heart of God, and who's concerned about the glory uh, and the name of God. God. And so the Lord help us to do all of that. There have been many times in my life as a pastor where I've felt like my back was against the wall or where we were experiencing something. I remember back when we were in a building project in Missouri. I mean, I pastored a medium-sized church and we didn't have, really didn't have a lot of money and we were undertaking a project that was just way bigger than we were. Total relocation. And I remembered we just, at one point, we just ran out of money. We ran out of money. I mean, we, we were at a point where we needed to spend a lot of money to keep the project going, but we didn't have it. We'd already, you know, maximized the amount that we felt comfortable in financing. And monies were coming in, but they were coming in slower than we needed them to come in. And we couldn't move. We couldn't move ahead. And that's a prototypical, and you're concerned about that as a pastor, because if you stall out, then you run the risk of losing mojo. You run the risk of losing momentum. And so, I mean, I'd never been in that position before, and I didn't know what to do. And the only thing I know to do was pray. And you know what I did? When I prayed, I found myself doing a similar thing. I started reminding God that this project was his doing and not mine. Because I tend to be more cautious by nature. I remember going out there, Don, when we had that st- of the stick up we had the framing up and it was the biggest building in town bigger than the county courthouse our our church was the one that we were building and I looked at Judy and I said this town must think we have lost our mind and my first thought was how are we going to get people to come to the point where this building is saturated with people and it was 
full the Sunday we moved into it. The day we moved into it, it was full. But I didn't think we were even going to get there. And so I remember telling God, this wasn't my idea, it was yours. And you know what we need. We're just doing what you've called us to do. And it's not just me. I wouldn't move until I had everybody on board with this thing. And by the way, God, we're in need. And the well is dry. And I remembered it was the next week. It was several days later. But the end of the next week when a guy came in and made a gift wasn't a member of our church. He was a visitor to our church. He had been coming to our church for about a month and a half. And he said, we really enjoy what's going on around here. And he said, I just want you to have this. And he shook my hand and then walked out the door just about as fast as he came in. $100,000 check he left in my hand. And uh, we were able to get what we needed and moved right along. We never stopped again. We never slowed down again until the building was done. That was a major breakthrough. And I never will forget, a lot of that came because I was very quick in my desperation to go to God and remind God, this is what you've asked us to do. We have done everything we've known to do. We're stymied, and unless you show up, we're not moving forward. And sure enough, God did. Nothing proud about that. That's just confident, bold praying in the will of God. Look at 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked from them. Confidence, boldness, it's more than okay if we pray that way before God. And then finally, the prayer of faith is persistent prayer. You don't give up. Not only do you pray boldly, but you pray boldly consistently, persistently, ongoing. Uh, Abraham did that. This is one of the most famous prayers in the Bible. Um, and why? I mean, why, what stake did uh, Abraham didn't live in Sodom? He didn't have really much of a stake there. Why did he even care? Uh, they weren't even thankful. You remember when Abraham went to rescue Lot, who had been taken captive when the city of Sodom was sacked a few chapters earlier. Abraham was the one that went up there, got the population, brought them all back, and redeposited them back in the land of Sodom. And he didn't so much as even get a thank you for that. But certainly Abraham was concerned about Lot. He had a nephew that lived over there. Y'all remember Lot, the sorry Lot? who was given the choice of where to go, and he chose to go and live in Sodom because it looked greener over there. Worst decision ever made, and, uh, or one of them anyway. But he was concerned about Lot. He was concerned about Lot's family. He had some kin folks over there. But he didn't want the people to die and be lost. He was genuinely concerned about their salvation. And in this prayer, you see the persistence because Abraham intercedes for Sodom not once, but six times. This is sometimes called the auctioneer passage. Because you can almost hear the voice of an auctioneer. Oh, God, will you, will you judge these people if they're 50 righteous? What about 45? Down here about 40. Is there 40, 40, 35? Count about 30 and 30, 35, 25, 20. And he goes all the way down 
And God keeps saying, okay, 50, okay, I'll relent with 50. What about 45? Okay, I'll relent 45. Do I have 40? Yes, relent to 40. And he goes all the way until he reaches 10. And you know why 10 is important? Because that's how many was in Lot's family. He had 10 kinfolk over there, and that's where he stops. So there's this dramatic pause. What about 10? And God, I'm sure, knew what was in his heart. And every time he tells him, if those righteous are there, then I won't destroy it. And here's what we find out. What do we find out? There's not 10 righteous there. How many get out? How many survive the fire and brimstone of Sodom? Three. Initially, three get out alive. And you know why they made it out? Abraham. They make it out because of Abraham's intercession. That's implied here. It's like the church in Acts chapter 12 praying praying for Peter when Peter was in prison. And the whole church, or much of the church anyway, maybe the whole church couldn't have fit in that house, but maybe they were coming in in shifts and they were, the living room was full and they were all down on their knees and they were praying to God for Peter. And God comes and breaks the chains and opens the door and Peter walks out and shows up at the house, right? So you read that and what's the import? That those chains were broken and the doors were open. Why? Because the church was praying. Otherwise, why even include it? Why not just say, and God broke the chains and opened the door? No, there's a direct connection there. You say, well, would Peter have been released? Would God have provided a miracle if nobody had prayed? Why don't you ask that question to God and leave me alone? I don't know. All I know is the church did pray. And that's the point of the passage, isn't it? And I'll tell you another thing I know. Abraham prayed. And there were three people that walked out alive that may not have had it not been for his incredible, bold, persistent intercession. And Jesus teaches us to pray that way. He teaches a parable to his disciples in Luke chapter 18 where he tells that parable of the widow who keeps begging the judge to give her justice. And Luke says at the beginning of that parable that Jesus told it to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. George Mueller, who was a great servant of the Lord in England back in the Victorian age, said the great fault of God's children is that they do not continue in prayer. They do not go on praying. They do not persevere. If they desire anything for God's glory, they should pray until they get it. I just uh, added a new biography of George Mueller to my library my college roommate's father was a publisher and he passed away earlier this year and 
Joe called me and heard I was coming to Nashville for a few days this summer, and he said, man, uh, we need to eat, and then you need to come over, uh, and uh, we, you need to come and get some of these books out of Dad's library. He's probably got 10,000 volumes in his library. And he said, in fact, you can have his whole library if you want it. And I said, my house won't hold 10,000 books. That's a lot of books. And it was. Two levels with a spiral staircase. The man did well. And he was a publisher. That's what he did for a living. And um, so I went over and I took 65 volumes out of that library. And one of them was a biography of George Mueller. And I look forward to reading it because he was a praying machine. And what he teaches more effectively about prayer is to not give up doing it. We tend to wilt. Americans in this generation, this age, and I'm not being harsh about any particular generation, but previous generations, I think, have known better about persistence and sticking with it and not giving up more than more recent generations. And I would even include my own post-baby boom type generations, and even the baby boomers for that matter, who were spoiled rotten. And it doesn't take much for us to just throw up our hands and, and quit. And we don't want to like the struggle. And yet prayer is an ongoing struggle. And the Bible would teach us never cease in the struggle. Jesus taught us in Matthew 7, 7, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find, knock, and the door will be open to you. In the Greek New Testament, present imperative verbs, present tense means ongoing action. Ask, if you read an amplified Bible, it will say something like ask and keep on asking and you will receive. It's not just once. Seek and don't stop seeking and you'll find. Knock without giving up, and the door will be opened to you. Do you see that? Effective prayer is what? Persistent prayer. One day, a young boy was watching a holy man on the banks of a river in southern India, and the boy respected that man greatly. He saw him there praying every day, every morning, every evening, and he goes up to him and said, I want you to teach me to pray. And the holy man looked back at the boy and said, do you really want to learn how to pray? And the young boy said, I really want to learn how to pray. And the young man put his hands on the side of his head, and the young boy thought, oh, this is going to be great because he's going to impart some supernatural power to me. And then he took his head and plunged it beneath the water and held it there. And the boy started kicking and screaming and thought, well, I've come across a madman, and he thought he was going to die. And finally, when the bubbles began to stop, the holy man allowed the boy to come up out of the water, gasping for breath, soaking wet with water. And when he captured his breath, he looked back at him and said, you crazy man, why did you do that to me? And the holy man said, I thought you wanted to learn how to pray. And he said, I did, but I didn't want to drown doing it. He said, oh, no, that was your first lesson. My first lesson. The man looked back at him and said, yes. When you long to pray as much as you longed to breathe, then you'll know what it means to pray. Nothing can stand against the man or the woman who can pray. And pray we must. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do 
nothing. And the time will come in your life, if it hasn't already, where for God to answer your prayer will be the most important thing in your life. You better know how to pray.